Back in 2017, Burger King put out this ad campaign when they were set to open their first location in Belgium. And so they launched this online publicity campaign, they set up this whole website, and it asked its users, who's the king? They asked them to vote for who they would want to be their king, and so they were given two choices on this website. One, they were given this cartoon version of the real Belgian king, Philip. And the other, this fictional Burger King mascot. Some of you might remember what that mascot looks like. And so the website declared, two kings, one single crown, who shall reign? And anyone choosing the Belgian king would get prompted, would get asked this question, are you sure? He won't make your fries for you. And so naturally, this mock election drew the open criticism from the Belgian royal family, and they shut it down. Took down the website, and the website was replaced with this screen displaying this modified version of the Burger King logo that basically just said burger without the word king in between the two buns. And below it said, there's no place for two kings in Belgium. And so, one takeaway from this is that the Belgian royal family agreed with Burger King on at least one thing, that there can be only one king. Now, over the course of these next few weeks, we've been, started on, uh, we've been working on the sermon series on three kings, right? Saul, David, and Solomon. The bad, the good, and the ugly. And it begins in 1 Samuel with this transition of government, which we kind of hit on last week when Minister Pat kicked off this sermon series. This transition of government from judgeship to monarchy, from judges to kings. And so we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8 what the people of Israel said to Samuel that kicked off this whole thing. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your way. Samuel was a judge. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And at the heart of this sermon series is this acknowledgement that the kings of this world, whether political, religious, spiritual, ultimately will fall short. That even though in the scriptures we find Saul, who is ideally equipped to be king, even though there was David, who was a man after God's own heart, even though there was Solomon, who had wisdom beyond all wisdom, all three still stumbled. The people, the people of Israel wanted a king like all the other nations. That is to say that they wanted someone who would be there, a human king who would be there to lead them into battle, but they rejected the king that they already had. And so God ultimately gives them what they want. They wanted a shift in their government from one of judgeship to one of monarchy. You see, judges were rotational. No, they were ad hoc, they were local, they arose from a response to a a local crisis. And so, you know, an invading nation might might come in and, and start oppressing a part of Israel. The people would pray, they would cry out to God, they would wait for a response. And then God would answer, raise up a judge to deliver them. 
But they didn't want judges anymore. They wanted a king. They wanted what the other nations had. A king who would be there to lead them into battle. A king that was more national than local. And so God gives them Saul. He has a good start. We, we hit on that a little bit last week. In chapter 11, you know, Saul does the very thing they asked God for, which was to lead them into battle. And so in verse 11 of chapter 11, the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came to the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And Saul, with his good start, even stops the lynching from happening because the people, after getting this victory, they wanted to put to death all those who were opposed to making Saul king. But Saul is like, no, no, no. Instead, he gives the glory and the credit to God. And he says, two verses later, that not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And so this is a great start. Here you have a king who is obeying the word of God, who is following God and leading his people to see God in all these victories. But this didn't last long. Chapters 13 to 15, which is the bulk of our passage today, basically highlights Saul's character flaws and his self-centered decisions that are completely spiritually insensitive, completely unaware of what, is God, what God is doing and requiring and commanding. Saul, uh, Samuel had already warned the people that it would be well with this people if the king and them continued to obey the voice of the Lord. But what we find with Saul is this isn't the case. Ultimately, the the problem with Saul is this. He, He goes against the word of God. This is the type of king that the people are following. This is the type of king that they wanted. He does this in two ways. First, he rejects God's word. And so, a couple examples from Scripture. Chapter 13, Saul begins to reveal the kind of king, the kind of leader that he is. He's supposed to wait for Samuel to come and offer the burnt and peace offerings, but he couldn't wait. And so lacking the patience, Saul decides to take matters into his own hands, and he, he does it himself. But there's a deeper significance to this action. It's more than just him trying to be efficient or him trying to to cut corners. In doing so, his mentality is he's trying to manipulate God, thinking that as long as these offerings are presented, he can receive favor from the Lord. It doesn't matter that there are instructions in terms of how to do it. No, it just mattered that for him, I need to get this done so that God, I can get God to give me something as I go into battle with the enemy. And immediately after Saul does this, Samuel shows up and is like, what have you done? And again, Saul's response begins to show these flaws in his character, these flaws in his kingship, in his leadership. You see, his response is not remorse. It's not repentance. It's not ownership. It's deny, deny, accuse. So Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul says, look, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. 
So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. He took matters into his own hands and look at his response. It's not, this is what I've done and I've transgressed the commandments of the Lord. It's, you know, hey, look, these people are, are leaving and, and you didn't come. And the enemy is starting to gather. And so there were two consequences that arose. Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so long term, because Saul has rejected the word of the Lord, really what Saul is doing is Saul is rejecting the authority of God. God has now rejected him as king. And immediately, God has already sought out a man after his own heart. And we know this because even as Saul continues to reign, continues to mess up, we see David start to enter into the scene. Who will, still, who will eventually come into that kingship. This wasn't the only time that Saul failed to follow God's word. Two chapters later, in chapter 15, God commands Saul to strike the people of Amalek down. So verses 2 to 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. We need to take a few minutes to to kind of reflect on what is being commanded here because, you know, at first glance, this this is a difficult passage to swallow. Right? There's no way to deny the violence that is being commanded here by God. Even for some of you, we just look at these two verses and it seems at first glance almost completely unjustifiable, right? It actually almost kind of feels like jihad, right? Like holy war. Like it raises a lot of questions, which admittedly we're not going to be able to tackle all this morning when we look at you know, what God is commanding Saul to do with his armies, to wipe them all out. But let me give a few points that I think will at least give us a primer to understanding what is being asked here. So what is being commanded here is this phrase to devote to destruction. The Hebrew term here is harem. It's what scholars called divine warfare. It's a little bit different from holy war. Holy war has a lot of, you know, connotations nowadays, but a lot of scholars call it divine warfare. And one of the reasons for that is because biblical divine warfare is not primarily about people going out to fight in the name of God to rid the world of infidels or people who don't believe, but rather God going out to fight on behalf of his people. And this divine warfare is, not, is a focused attack on sinful and idolatrous worship not simply an attack on people. Now today, it's hard for us to to understand how it's all connected because we separate the the spiritual and the sacred. We live in a society that kind of just dichotomizes the two. Even in our own minds and our ways of thinking, we have our private religious lives and then we have the public square. 
But this wasn't the case in the ancient Near East. Right? Ancient peoples like the Amalekites, the Israelites, the Canaanites, they saw their identities bound up in three things. Their particular people group, their particular place, their location, and their particular God. All three were intricately connected. And so the Canaanites worshipped the god Baal, who governed them in the land of Canaan. So this was one people one people group in a particular place with a particular God who reigned over that particular territory. And what divine warfare harem seeks to do is it breaks the bonds of deity, people, and land. And so when the Amalekites and the Canaanites and all these other nations were displaced or they were defeated, the deeper significance, what is happening is that their gods are also defeated and revealed as powerless and false. And so when the Israelites are, are going into the promised land, right, and they start going to war, it's about creating this idea of sacred space, that God is coming in, the God of the universe, of the cosmos, the God who we worship and realize and believe is omnipresent and authoritative over all peoples and all things, he's coming in and he's showing his, his power and his authority to a people who, believe, who don't believe in that. He's showing his power and his authority over all peoples and over all places and even over all these false gods. And the second thing to remember, the topic of this biblical divine warfare has to be understood in the context of a loving and patient God who is also holy and just. Right? Oftentimes it might be easy for us to dichotomize the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? where the Old Testament is this angry and violent God and the New Testament is loving and gracious God. But that's not actually the picture that we see in Scripture. God's, uh, even God's promise to Abraham in, in the beginning uh, parts of the Bible is filled with grace, not just to Abraham, but to the peoples of the world. God's promise to Abraham about inhabiting the land, we, we read that was fulfilled. It took a long time to fulfill that, that promise, right? Like 400 plus years. But part of the reason was it was allowing time for many, many, many generations of Amorites to repent and to change their ways. But at some point, God says, enough. That sin has consequences. And that God does not allow that sin that destroys his creation to go unchecked forever. A third point, this idea of divine warfare, it's challenging. Right? But we also have to understand it in the context of the larger biblical story. And so when we read in the Old Testament about these wars, we ought to be clear that these are not to be repeated by the church. Right? The, what we read in 1 Samuel 15 is not to be used as a proof text or as a justification for so-called Christians or so-called churches to enact violence in the name of, the, in the name of God. And, and a large part of that reason is because we trace the trajectory of grace across the larger biblical story, and we see that ultimately it comes to a point where Jesus becomes harem for us. That God enacts divine warfare not on the peoples of the world, but on his son. That Jesus 
at the cross bears the punishment for sin, bears God's wrath, becomes a substitute for us on the cross. He becomes harem for us. And that is the good news. So, God gives Saul this explicit command at this moment in salvation history to to vote to destruction everything. But again, what we find is Saul doesn't follow through with it completely, right? He spares Agag the king, and he spares the best of the sheep and oxen and fattened livestock, and all that was good. And then he sets up a monument, not for God, but for himself. And when Samuel arrives, look at Saul's response in chapter 15, verse 14. Saul is so proud to say, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Sam was like, dude, I can hear the sheep behind you bleeding. I can hear the oxen. Over and over and over again, Saul is revealing the kind of character that he has, the kind of leader, the kind of king that he is, the one who casts blame on others, the one that continues to justify or to deflect or deny or diminish or dismiss what God is actually calling him to do. He de- demonstrates in these chapters that, that he is a king that rejects God's authority by rejecting his word. He does a second thing. He, he adds to God's word as well. So in chapter 14, we read there that the men of Israel, Saul's soldiers, had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, "'Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening.'" And I am avenged on my enemies. And so none of the people had tasted food. So so Saul goes beyond what God had required. He makes an oath that is really there so that Saul can avenge his enemies. It's not about God anymore. He makes an oath that burdens his own people, his own soldiers, his people even more. So much so that they grow faint. And even his son Jonathan sees the foolishness of this vow. He's, his son Jonathan says, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they have found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And, and then Saul's foolishness and rashness, he almost compounds that with more foolishness and more rashness. Jonathan, his son, didn't know of this vow, and so he ate some honey. And Saul was ready to put his own son to death because of his own man-made selfish vow. Not what God required, but what Saul vowed. And if it weren't for the people, his own mistake would have been compounded by another. In these few chapters, we see this picture of Saul. A king who started off well, but quickly revealed the kind of leader and the kind of king that he was. A king who would rather seek to manipulate God to get what he wanted. A king who would rather cast the blame on others rather than take ownership of his own sin. We ask, what does this have to do with us today? On on one level, when we kind of zoom out, 1 Samuel is a book about politics. It's a book about government, transition in government, the change in government from judgeship to monarchy, and it's evaluating that government. It's about 
the people's desire in their heart for a human king and the rejection of God as king. Now, let's be clear here that 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, it's not a justification for a modern-day theocracy. We don't live in a theocracy today. But 1 Samuel is an invitation for us as Christians to think and care and reflect deeply about politics, about our government, about the nation that we live in. God doesn't just care about our private religious lives. He cares about the world. He cares about politics. At 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, sees the spiritual and the sacred a lot more closely tied together than, than we do. And God's concerns ought to be our concerns rather than just dichotomizing the two completely. These chapters, ultimately perhaps, are also another reminder to us as followers of Jesus about ultimately who or what do we trust in. On another level, it's an examination of leadership as Christians. Again, given, given that we're not a theocracy, we can't assume, perhaps, that God has appointed or much less anointed our political leaders. It's not the same situation of what we find in 1 Samuel as we do today. We can't assume that he will hold politicians to the same standard that he held to Saul or David or Solomon in the sense of tying their virtue with their success. But we do know from Scripture that he ultimately will hold all leaders accountable for their conduct. In fact, he cares very deeply about leaders. And this is sobering for many of us who serve as leaders in different contexts, whether in the church, I myself included, and Minister Pat, and elders and deacons, and other pastors, or, or those of us who serve as leaders in the workplace, or even in the government. We look at the example of Saul, who completely missed the point that partial obedience is full disobedience, who failed to see that sacrifice is not a substitute for obedience. And ultimately, Saul himself acknowledged that he feared man, he feared the people more than he feared God. And this idea of the fear of man or the fear of the people is a very real thing. It's a, real, a very real challenge for those of us who serve, particularly in, in leadership positions. And what is this actually? Fear of man or fear of people is when in our eyes, people are big and God is small. And that leads us to obey the former more than the latter. It leads us to pay heed and pay attention to the voice of the former more than the voice of the latter. And even Saul himself admits in the end of our passage today, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And we ask and we pray that those of us, particularly those of us in leadership, whether political or spiritual, would heed this example unless we suffer a similar fate. Let's pray. 
God, we come before you and acknowledge that at times we want to put something or someone else on the throne of our hearts more than you. And many times we do not acknowledge you as king, and we set up ourselves as the sole authority in our lives or in the places of, our influence, of influence, God. And so we confess that, and we, we ask that your spirit would continue to transform us. We give thanks to you for Jesus, who died on the cross so that we might have new life in you. In Christ's name we pray.